Well, today we're going to continue with a series of messages that we started, I guess it was three or four weeks ago now, that we're calling The Kingdom, and in which we're looking together at the kingdom parables of Jesus, these stories that Jesus tells over and over and over again in an attempt to explain to us what his kingdom's really all about. And today we're going to come to a, a parable, a story that he tells to a group of doubters. One of the realities about Jesus and his ministry is that he has always been surrounded by doubters. That was true then, it's true now. And I point that out to you this morning because maybe that's true of you. In other words, you've come and you've gathered together as part of the crowd that gathers around Jesus this morning, you know, and you're in the presence of His Spirit, you're in the presence of Christ. Whether you realize it or not, you've come to sing or at least to listen to people sing songs about Jesus and, and hear a story that Jesus once taught. And, and so, like, you're here, but you came and you brought your doubts. And I want to say to you, welcome, and that's okay. Jesus is not afraid of our doubts. He's not intimidated. He doesn't have to call a council of, you know, the elders of the angels to try to figure out what the answer is going to be. He doesn't, and neither does he reject doubters. In fact, he takes great pains to explain himself to doubters, and actually, it's what we see him do today. Jesus tells this parable to a group of doubters, and by the way, there are a group of people who didn't doubt that he was a great teacher. They heard him teach. They were clear on that. And they didn't doubt that he was a great prophet. They knew a great prophet when they saw one, and they were pretty clear on that. They didn't doubt that he was a great leader, got it, great humanitarian. They saw all the efforts. They did not even doubt, as many do today, that he was an awesome, amazing, unbelievable, you got to be kidding me, miracle worker. For they witnessed that. What they doubted was that he was the Son of God. What they doubted was that he was the long-awaited Messiah. What they doubted was that he was really the true king of the true kingdom of God. And the reason that they doubted... Well, the reason that they doubted is because the kingdom they heard Jesus proclaiming and the kingdom they saw Jesus bringing was just radically different from the kingdom they thought they would hear the Messiah proclaim and they thought they would see the Messiah bring. He violated all of their expectations, and as a result, they said, well, can't be the Messiah. And chief among those expectations was what the Messiah would do with evil. What do we do with evil? In other words, they expected that when the Messiah came, item agenda number one, or at least 1A, okay, they would have settled for like 1B, but it's way up high on the agenda list was going to be that the Messiah would show up and then immediately he would eradicate all manner of sin and, for that matter, all sinful people. He surely wouldn't be receiving tax collectors and sinners. Good grief. But really, I mean, think about that. Their expectation was Messiah will come and that will be the end of murder, the end of adultery, the end of fraud, the end of theft, the end of all manner of immorality. It will be the end of sin and it will be, by the way, also the end of sinners. And it will be also the end of a natural evil. There will be no more catastrophes, no more hurricanes, no more floods, no more disease. Think about what that's going to do for your insurance premiums, really. I mean, it's awesome. No tsunamis, no, you know, floods, there's not going to be any uh, droughts, no pestilence. Try this one on. No earthquakes. So here's the deal. Jesus comes along and he's saying, I'm the Messiah and this is the advent. This is the beginning of my kingdom. And yet all of these things are still happening and so they doubt. And I think that if we're honest, sometimes so do we. 
You know, I mean, we look at this idea of Jesus is the true Messiah, and he's the king of the true kingdom, and Jesus Christ is presently on his throne, right? I mean, we believe that. He is on his throne, reigning and ruling in the universe, and so on, and so And then we look at the chaos, and we look at the crud, and we look at the sin, and we look at the devastation, and we look at earthquakes, and we look at all this mess, and we say to ourselves, just to ourselves, huh? Really? Is that right? Well, Jesus tells this parable to doubters, and Jesus does with them what he does with every doubter. He doesn't reject, he doesn't freak out and go, you know what, can I get back to you on this because I have to think this through, I'm king of the universe, and so this is a little complicated. What he always does, though, is he always calls us to stop doubting and to start believing. And that's what he does here. Matthew says this, Matthew 13, verse 24, he says, Jesus put another parable before them, saying, and here's the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. Now, we've talked all about the kingdom of heaven. What have we said about the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of God is what? What's the vision? What's the picture that Jesus hangs up on the wall and says, there it is? It's the rolling back of the curse. Of sin and death, it's a return to paradise. It is the filling of this earth with a people who live their lives as an anthem of praise, not to the little gods of this world, not to themselves, but to the true and the living God. It is the reclaiming of absolutely everything in the created order for the worship and the praise and the glory of the creator of the created order. It is, as I've said repeatedly, the total transformation of this sin-stained, sorrow-filled, mostly filthy, mostly broken planet into ultimately a perfect place, a joy-filled place, a pure and unbroken place, a place where God's will is done here even as it's done in heaven. That's it, you know? And like those guys were expecting that, and you and I were expecting that, but then Jesus shows up on the scene, he doesn't bring that. And it's 2,000 years later, and we're still looking around, aren't we? Jesus tells this parable to doubters, and he says in the parable, if I can just paraphrase, guys, evil is going to be dealt with, and I, Jesus, am going to deal with it, just not yet, and there's a reason for my delay, so be looking for that. Jesus says to doubters, he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Okay, so now you've got to start asking questions, right? We've got a man, we have good seed, we have a field. I mean, what is all that stuff? Well, he's going to tell us in a little bit, and you'll see it, but I'm just going to give you a little preview. The man is Jesus Christ. The, Jesus is the sower. He's the farmer in this parable. The good seed, hopefully, is you and I. It's all of us who have come with our sin to Jesus and said, look, I, I'm, I've fallen and I can't get up. I'm broken, I cannot fix myself. I'm dirty and I cannot make myself clean. And I'm I know that you can. And as such, by faith, we become citizens of his kingdom. The field, which you'll note, he says, is his field, is this world. It's not my world. It's not your world. It's his world. It's very important. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, which you doubters don't understand, is kind of the point. He says, may be compared to a man, that's Jesus, who sowed good seed, that's those with faith in Jesus, in his field, his being a really important word, it's in his world. But while his men were sleeping, uh uh-oh, his enemy, that's Satan, that's the evil one, you know the story of the Garden of Eden, 
in an act of sabotage long ago in that garden, came into the garden with seeds of a kingdom all his own, which our father Adam quite greedily and readily allowed to be planted in this kingdom, this field that we know as the Lord's. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man, that's Jesus, who sowed good seed, that's those with faith in Jesus, in his field, his world. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy, the evil one, came and sowed a kingdom of his own, came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up, when they began to bud is the idea, and they bore grain, Then the weeds appeared also. Then they figured out, oh my goodness, somebody sabotaged our field. What Jesus is referring to here is something these people all would have understood because it was a common practice in those days. They actually had laws against doing this to wheat fields. Enemies would sabotage one another's wheat fields by coming in at night secretly, clandestinely, right? And right as they've been sowing the wheat seeds, they would come in and they would sow a weed called the Darnell plant. And what's really crafty about that is that when the Darnell plant and the actual wheat plants come up out of the ground, you can't tell the difference. Even the most skillful farmer would have had a very difficult time figuring out that his field had been sabotaged, and he certainly wouldn't have even you know, thought to look unless he had suspected that it would have been sabotaged. And the deal is they all grow up together, and you don't even know which one's which until they begin to bud, until they begin to reveal their fruit, if you will. And then you have this aha moment where you go, oh my, somebody sabotaged our field. But now here's the problem that you have. You can't then go run out in your field, or in this case, send your servants out into the field and have them yank out all of the Darnell weeds. And the reason is because the plants have grown to the point where the weeds aren't, or the, the roots underground of the weeds and the wheat are intertwined. I mean, you can't rip up the one without destroying the other, and the other's Produce is what you're looking for, right? Here's the other thing you can't do. You can't harvest it all and just grind it all up and make kind of a funky new kind of wheat. It doesn't work that way either because the Darnell plant carried with it a poisonous fungus, so it would destroy it. You can't mix the two. But until they both are fully grown and have fully borne their fruit, you can't separate them either. Hang on to that because that's the analogy Jesus is making. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man, Jesus is like, that would be me, who sowed good seed, that's what I've done in this kingdom of mine, in my field. Those with faith in Christ. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy, the evil one, in an act of sabotage in the Garden of Eden came bringing bad seed. He came and sowed weeds, this Darnell plant, along with the wheat. And then went away. And so when the plants came up and what? They began to bud. That's how you know the difference. It's the fruit they bear. Otherwise, they're indistinguishable. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Then it became apparent that the field had been sabotaged and the servants of the master of the house are distraught. And they came and they said to him, Master, Did you not sow good seed in your field? Now, they're not accusing him of sabotaging his own field. I mean, it's a rhetorical question. They're like, we we, we don't get this. I mean, this is the field that you sowed, and look what's in it. Look what's in it. What's in it? Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? And then here is like one of the biggest questions of life. How then does it have weeds? Lord, 
You're the king of the universe. This is your field. You plant only good seed. What in the world is up with all the evil? You ever ask that? I think some point in life, everybody asks that. And I think also, as we think about this story and we look at that question, we've got to admit at some point that the parable, I mean, when we're stretching this analogy, at some point it doesn't work. I mean, our Lord is most definitely not like a farmer who plants his seed in his world and then goes and takes a nap or goes to sleep at night and leaves it unguarded, and he's just completely oblivious to everything that's going on here. What does the Bible teach us about our God? He never sleeps, he never slumbers. He's everywhere present, all at the same time, no naps, remember. And he knows everything, past, present, and future. So then when the enemy comes creeping into his garden, into his field, bringing seed that's indistinguishable from the rest of us, by the way, except by the fruit that it bears, he comes introducing evil. Is God asleep? Is he taking a nap? Is he on vacation? Is he on the phone? Is he watching TV? No. He's there, isn't he? And he doesn't stop it. It's fascinating. God did not create evil, neither can he be charged with bringing it into the world. But he didn't prevent it either. And if he did not prevent it, well, he chose not to do that, didn't he? And he chose not to do it for a purpose, which brings us back to our question, which is the question that everybody in trial at some point asks, and it's why. And the answer is the answer, frankly, to every question in an ultimate sense. The answer is for his glory. This, in case you missed it, is his world. This is his field. And everything and everyone in it, well, are His. And He created it all for the display of His glory. It's a theater. It's a stage of operation that allows God to reveal Himself to the objects of His affection. And just think with me for a second about how much of God you would never see, how much of His glory you would never ever know, and thus be able to celebrate and worship for all of eternity, but for the existence of evil in this world. Think about it in terms of light and darkness for a second. I mean, look, you know, we all love light. We value light. We actually pay for light. We get a bill every month. I don't know if you get one. I get one. And then we pay for it, and the lights stay on. I mean, like, we're all about light. Light is warm. Light brings growth. Light is life. I mean, it's all of this wonderful stuff about light that we appreciate. Why do we appreciate it so much? Because we know darkness. We know what it is to stumble around in the dark. We understand the perils of darkness, the futility of it, none being unwilling to be able to get anything done or unable to get anything done. We value light in large part because we know and understand, appreciate, and have experienced its opposite. We'll just start running through the list. You don't know light without darkness, right? You don't know right without wrong. Justice, you don't know without crime. Health without sickness. Life without death. Holiness without corruption. Do you know holiness without corruption? No, it just would be all you know. You wouldn't understand it. You wouldn't appreciate it. You wouldn't worship it. You wouldn't behold it and be moved by it. 
be humbled by it. You don't know love without hate, truth without falsehood, deliverance without true jeopardy, good without bad, righteousness without unrighteousness, joy without sorrow, comfort without pain, pardon without judgment, grace without guilt. I mean, I could go on and on and on here. But the point is, so much of what we love God for and sing about and worship God today, but not just today, for all of eternity would be forever hidden away from us, but for the existence of evil in this world. God did not create evil, and He is not to be blamed for it, but He most certainly did allow it to be planted alongside righteousness until the harvest is full. But here's the thing, you know, I mean, these guys, 2,000 years ago, gathering around Jesus, they come together, a crowd, many doubters in the crowd, and they're kind of thinking, isn't this long enough, (laughs) you know? I mean, they had earthquakes then too, pestilence, famine, life expectancy was a lot less, poverty, heartache, And their expectation is Messiah comes and finally, praise God, it comes to an end. And then here comes Jesus. And it doesn't. And then here we are. And yet it still hasn't. Jesus is telling us this parable, and in a sense, he is saying to us in this parable, guys, (laughs) this has not escaped my notice. Evil is going to be dealt with, and it is going to be dealt with thoroughly. It ends, and I bring it to an end. But it doesn't end yet. And there's a reason for that. Jesus is the farmer. Jesus is the sower. We need to trust his good judgment. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man, that's Jesus, who sowed good seed, that's those with faith in Jesus, the citizens of his kingdom, in his field, in his world, But while his men were sleeping, his enemy, the devil, came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And so when the plants came up, when they began to bud, when they began to reveal their true character, who or what they really are, well, when they began to bear grain, the weeds appeared also. It all of a sudden became clear that the field had been sabotaged. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he, Jesus, the sower, said to them, An enemy has done this. I did not do it. So the servant said to him, Well, then do you want us to go out and gather them? Because that's what those people in that day wanted. And that's at times what we want too, isn't it? I mean, Lord, enough is enough. We've tolerated these weeds long enough. But what does he say? Do you want us to go out? Do you want us to gather them up? And Jesus, the sower, the master farmer, said, no. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow. What does that tell you? They still have some growing to do. They're buds, but they're not mature. If you pull them up now, you're going to rip out the wheat and the harvest is lost. I will let them grow together until they are fully ripe. He says, let them both grow together until the harvest. 
And at harvest time, when both the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust, the evil and the good, the children of my kingdom and the children of the kingdom of the evil one have fully borne their fruit, and they are then finally ready to be harvested, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, you guys don't buy me as Messiah because you don't understand the nature of the kingdom, the timing of the kingdom, and the purposes behind the kingdom. He's saying, guys, evil is going to end and I'm going to bring it to an end, but I'm going to do it when it's ready to be done. And you need to trust me on that one. The Christian life is a life of faith where we trust in the character of this all-knowing God and live out His glory. He says, if you uproot the one now, you'll wreck the harvest. So the doubters come to Jesus and He says, okay, okay, I got a response. Here it is. Kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and began to bud and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Then how does this have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said, Well then, do you want us to go out and gather them right now? And he said, Nope, don't do that. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. The time has not yet come. They're not fully mature. Let both grow until the harvest and at the harvest when both have fully produced their crop and have given me the capacity to display my great glory to the objects of my affection for all of eternity. Well, then I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. You see, that's his response. And apparently even his disciples didn't get it because a couple of verses later, it says, Then Jesus left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, uh, Huh? Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, Well, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. It's me. The field, well, that's the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the close of the age when both evil and righteousness have been fully realized and God's glory has been satisfactorily displayed. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. It's going to be dealt with, guys. But it's terrifying. And throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father, and they will know it because they know darkness. And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And then he says, he who has ears, let him hear. 
and let him live accordingly. That's the idea. It's not he who has ears, let him hear, and then he can write it down in a book, and you know, that'd be really cool, and he kind of knows the answer to the quiz. And he goes, no, no, no. And let him be transformed. Let him live differently, which really is kind of the only question left, I think. It's okay, fine. Evil is going to be dealt with. Jesus is going to deal with it. We've got to trust him on the timing of this whole thing. He is waiting until all evil and all righteousness have borne their fruit. When God is satisfied that enough of this stuff has gone on to fully display his glory before all of the objects of his affection for all of eternity, then judgment comes. And evil is wiped out. But until then, what? How do we live in the meantime? What does the presence of the kingdom of God now, not then, it's going to be pretty clear then, there won't be a lot of ambiguity. Oh yeah, I think I get it now. But right now, what does it look like? Weed and weeds growing together. What does the presence of the kingdom of God look like in this world, in my life and in yours? What should we be looking to see? What should we be looking to hear? What should the world hear and see and then interpret rightly as the concrete evidence of the actual kingdom of God in the midst of it? I think that Jesus answers that, and he answers it in his response to John the Baptist. John the Baptist even doubted. Did you know that? John the Baptist is arrested. He's taken into prison. He's awaiting execution. His head is going to be cut off. So that was fun. And he's looking apparently at the ministry of Christ, and I don't know, I mean, I guess it's not meeting up with his expectations because he sends a delegation to Jesus as if to say, have I wasted my time here, or are you really the one? I mean, the question they come with is, are you the one, or should we look for another? And here's what the Lord said. It says, and Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. And here's what this world needs to hear and see through us. This is concrete evidence of the presence of the kingdom of God. He says, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised physically and, by the way, spiritually. And the poor, not just in money, but in spirit and heart and soul, have good news. Good news, that's literally the word for the gospel, preached to them. That's what the kingdom looks like. Concrete evidence of the kingdom of God is when you and I take up the message of the kingdom. This gospel of free grace, of salvation, of of safety from the judgment that is coming. And then possessed like a group of people who actually believe it's coming, we then preach it. And when we not only deal with the forgiveness of sins, but we do battle against the effects of sin. We not just preach the message of the kingdom, but we live out the ethic of the kingdom. We what? We minister to the sick and the hurting. We help and we feed the hungry and the homeless. We've talked about this. We assist single moms and troubled teens. We minister to widows and orphans. If you're looking for concrete evidence of the presence of the kingdom of God, then look no further than this stage. Box after box of Haitian relief. That's it. That's what people need to hear, and that's what people need to see, and that's what kingdom building is all about. And we do it as those possessed knowing. The clock is ticking, both on our lives, 
and on eternity. So Jesus says to John, look, man, you're looking and listening for the wrong things. This is what you need to look for. This is what you need to listen for. And then he says this, and it's so profound. Here's his closing message to John the Baptist, famous last words to John the Baptist. He just says this, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who doesn't doubt me, who doesn't stumble over the chaos, over the things that maybe they don't completely understand, but who trusts. Jesus is not afraid of our doubts. He's not freaked out by our questions. Again, he's not calling the council, you know, a little meeting of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because this is a tough one. And he's not put off by doubters. He doesn't reject and dismiss us, thankfully, because all of us doubt. You don't know faith without doubt, do you? It's another one. But he always calls us to stop doubting and to start believing. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, he says. He who has ears, let him hear. Let him hear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for these stories, but we thank you more so for the storyteller. Lord, we thank you for the one who sows and who reaps and who has sown the seed of his grace in our hearts. Father, we pray that you would impress upon us the, the profundity of you, of your glory, that we might be those who behold you and who live accordingly. God, I pray that you would erase our doubts as we come honestly to you and just talk to you about them. As we search for you in prayer and in your word, I pray your Holy Spirit would minister and speak to our souls. And Lord, I pray that you might not only call us to faith and salvation and safety from judgment, but you would call us to realize clock's ticking, man. And we can invest in your glory forever. I pray, Lord, that the people in each one of our little worlds and then in our world as a church, this city, and then in the world beyond our borders, places like Haiti, can see and hear the glory of your kingdom in what we say and what we do. We thank you and we praise you. We do this in Jesus' name. Amen.